Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Another whole arena of generosity, which, of course, Sharon has has written and spoken so much about, uh, is the understanding that metta, loving kindness, is the expression of generosity. And I just want to highlight one aspect of it, and then Sharon can elaborate, as she does so beautifully, And that is really hmm, clarifying the difference in our experience between love and attachment. Because for most people, especially in close relationships, love and attachment are often just so intertwined that it's almost impossible to tell them apart. You know, with somebody that's very close to me and I love them, how can I not be attached? You know, it's just it's like, doesn't quite make sense. However, if we can bring a very careful mindfulness to our experience of attachment and love, the difference becomes very, very clear. So, for example, what is the energy, kind of the pure energy of love? In my experience, it's a generosity of the heart. It's like, it's, it's a giving of the heart. It's a wishing for the well-being, for the happiness, for the joy of someone else, or even towards ourselves. But it's the energy that goes outward. What is attachment? What is the energy of attachment? It's a holding. Like, we're afraid to let go. If you can pay attention to those times when you're most loving, pay attention to what that feels like. And then, if you think of it, when you're feeling most attached, you know, to someone you love, but the attachment aspect is strongest, pay attention to what that feels like. I think you will see that they are two, in a way, opposite feelings. One is a generosity, an offering, and one is a holding. Now, one of the things that has just been so striking to me and something that I think because people are not paying attention in this very careful way you know you really need a strong intentionality to parse these two qualities of the heart but what is so amazing is that realization that attachment even to those closest to us 
does not in any way enhance the feeling of love. It's not that attachment makes us more loving. In fact, quite the opposite. In close relationships, where does fear come from? It doesn't come from love. You know, where does jealousy come from? It doesn't come from love. All the kind of problematic aspects that can happen in close relationships, it comes from some kind of attachment. And if we can separate that out and realize, I don't need the attachment in order to love. And in fact, the attachment detracts from it. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is an easy exploration. You know, it's not. And there are certain kinds of attachment, you might say, between parents and child, which are very healthy psychologically. You know, in kind of psychological development, there are certain kinds of attachment that are needed. But I'm talking about, you know, our adult relationships with one another and really paying attention to what is generous in that relationship and what is not. And just like all the other kinds of generosity, we find that when we are loving without that clutch of attachment, it makes us and the other person happy. We live in a much more easeful uh, situation. This is, for me, this is just one example. We'll be talking more about other examples of just how powerful awareness and mindfulness can be. Because we generally are just leading our lives, acting out the patterns of our conditioning. And we each have different sets of conditioning, some of which has been very wholesome, some not so wholesome. It's only if we bring attention, mindfulness, awareness to really paying attention on this rather subtle level. But that can open a doorway to a tremendous freedom and a much greater capacity to love. I want to tell one story, which in my mind has to do with a little bit of what Joseph was just saying, the difference between attachment and love. Uh, although it might be a stretch, but that's... <laughs> in my mind, it's connected. <laughs> And then really turn it over to you for questions or comments or uh, whatever is coming up in your mind. So one of the interesting parts of exploring the nature of attachment, I think, is looking at what we're actually attached to. You know, making a certain impression, being perfect, um, never making a mistake, being in control of not only everything, but in particular somebody else. Uh, thwarting change, keeping it from happening, whatever it might be. So um, what came up to my mind was actually partly because Joseph has been talking about your mind going blank. <laughs> so it's almost more a story of my mind going blank or fear. So we, we began teaching at Naropa Institute the summer of 1974. And soon after, we were invited to teach to lead a month-long retreat in the sequoias in California. So the flow of the day in our intensive retreats is something happens in the morning before breakfast. I don't know what. I'm never up. And then there's breakfast. 
And then after breakfast, there's a, a, a sitting with instruction and questions and answers. And then there's just a succession of sitting practice, walking practice, sitting practice, walking practice, a few meals, contact with a teacher, either individually or in small groups. And then in the evening, there's one discourse. It's just one lecture. And I was absolutely petrified of public speaking. It was, I was incapable of giving one of those talks. So this is a 30-day retreat, and Joseph had to speak every night. And people used to come up and yell at him and say, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her speak? And he'd say, I'd love a night off. Talk to her. She's the one who won't do it. I couldn't do it. Because I was absolutely terrified that my mind would go blank. And that I'd just be sitting up here like... And I just couldn't bear the thought. So... Time went on, and then I thought, you know, there is that one practice, that one topic, loving kindness, which in Pali is meta, M-E-T-T-A. That's what we keep referring to, M-E-T-T-A. I thought there is that one thing called meta, loving kindness, where there's actually a guided meditation. So maybe if I'm talking about that and my mind goes completely blank, no one will notice because I could just launch into the guided meditation and they won't freak out. So... I thought, okay, that I can do. So this was months and months and months later. Uh, and at home in Barry, I have a pile of cassette tapes of me giving one talk, because I could only give one talk, which was about loving kindness, in case my mind went blank. And just as an aside, I told this story to Pema Chodron once, and she said, oh, I've been afraid all these years that I'd be giving a talk, and my mind would leap to another topic, and suddenly I'd be talking about something else. And said, in all these years, no one's complained. <laughs> like, do you know you were talking about something and then you wanted something else? Um, anyway, so all I could talk about was loving kindness, which turned out to be kind of a fortunate thing. Um, and then one day, so this is also a long time later, I thought, you know what? In a way, they're all kind of loving kindness talks because the nature of the relationship between who's speaking and who's sitting there is just one of connection. That's all. No one's waiting for me to impart my brilliant expertise or be flawless in my scholarship because I'm not, you know. Uh, it's, it's a way of more profoundly connecting with ourselves and with one another. And I thought they're all loving kindness talks. And that was the moment I could speak about anything. You know, so what are we holding on to so fiercely? And what happens when we actually loosen the grip of that notion and we're there more fully in the moment with what's called for in the moment. And our greatest value is actually connection, which is love. So there we are. That's a possibility. So um, somewhere there is a microphone and somebody who's willing to run around with it, at least uh, initially. And uh, I think we'll just be informal about it. If you have a question directed to one of us, that's fine, but the other one may feel inspired to add something, and we'll just we'll just see how it goes. But I don't know where. There's the microphone. Uh, if you can catch his attention, if you have a question, that would be great. And I don't know about this microphone. Sometimes they say holds it like an ice cream cone, like holds it close. <laughs> hey, my name is Julie. Thank you so much both of you, for who you are and what you do. Uh, so, Joseph, I'll sit. <laughs> I am curious, 
because the the Vipassana meditation bringing us back to there is a body had a pretty profound effect on me. I wouldn't call it positive or negative, but it was intense. And what I noticed is that um, there was no I am a body. There was no um, there is my body or uh, it took me out of it. But in that, it made me very aware, like you said, of the whole picture of the body and it made me come into my senses and made me come into listening and just very sensory. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the division between the senses and experiencing them fully and mindfulness. And in yoga, we have a goal of the withdrawal of the senses. And I find that depending on the teachings, like you were talking about this afternoon, I vacillate between the two, depending on the practice. And so maybe curious about your goal in the wording of that and your expansion. I'm just curious, uh, when you said in, in the yoga uh, teaching, at least in part, it's the withdrawal from the senses. What does that mean exactly? Um, so there's a, um, a practice of, what is it? Brahmacharya? No. It's okay, I, but, won't, but, know, I won't know. Yeah, anyway. it begins with a B. I can't remember it right now. Um, but it is, it's, it's coming out of the sensory experience so that we can experience the truth of who we are. And so when I practice mindfulness in the way of, mm. of feeling everything, it, it gives me anxiety. It's, it's really intense. So everything becomes louder. Everything becomes full. And, and, um, I guess the truth of who I am becomes lost in that. It's a big question. <laughs> so. Can you hear him? Um, so a couple of couple of avenues into this. Uh, one is there are different kinds of meditation, you know, and generally speaking, and this cuts across traditions as well. Uh, one stream of meditation practice is the stream of tranquility and calm, which comes from the withdrawal from the senses, you know. And so in Buddhism, it's it's the practice of uh, concentration, and the technical term is jhana, uh, where you can get so absorbed in the object that you actually lose contact with any sensory input. And that's the development of tremendous concentration and strength and tranquility and calm and different kinds of happiness. So that's one stream of practice. The other stream of practice might call um, insight practices or wisdom practices. And the essence of those traditions, at least within Buddhism, it's what I have the most experience of, uh, the idea is opening to all experience in order to directly experience the momentary changing nature of everything. 
So the idea is not to open it all, open up to some steady state of the whole, but rather in opening up, we see that sounds come and go and sensations and thoughts, and it's changing very rapidly. And as the mindfulness gets stronger, the rapidity, the perception of change gets very, very refined. So we really see just the momentariness of phenomena. The point of that is the more we see the impermanence of what's arising, that itself deconditions grasping because we see nothing lasts long enough to hold on to. And so it's through the seeing of impermanence that we really begin to let go of many kinds of clinging and attachment, which in itself is a free quality of mind. The two streams of practice support each other. So even though they're different, the stronger the stability, the stronger the concentration, the steadiness that came from that withdrawal, then the easier it is to open up to the changing nature of everything, both without getting distracted and also without, to put it colloquially, colloquially freaking out. So I, this is a story I actually heard from Ramdas years ago, which I've used a lot in my teaching, which describes sort of the different stages of experience um, as we refine our perception of change. So he said, and I don't know where he found the story, but I, I liked it a lot. It's like somebody jumping out of a plane and at first, you know, falling, falling. And at first, there's the excitement of free fall. You know, it's like, whoa, this is, this is exciting, you know. And then, after some time, the terror strikes of <laughs> falling. You know, and so a lot of fear can come up in the perception of rapid change and dissolution and nothing to hold on to. So it's not, inside practice is not a bliss trip. You know, and that's not its purpose or point. We go through the whole range of experience. So at first there's the excitement of feeling the change. Then there's the terror, you know. And the terror comes when the person realizes, oh, I don't have a parachute. You know, there's, there's no safety here. But then as continue falling and the terror of no parachute, at a certain point, realize there's no ground. So as soon as you realize there's no ground, then one is in the equanimity of the experience of change without fear, without holding, without grasping. And so there's a great freedom in that experience. But we go through those different phases. Um, Am I approaching your question? If not, ask yeah, again. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Diane, and thank you both for being here. Um, I had the privilege of being with you in, at Naropa in those early years. So do no harm. I grapple with it, and especially with food and clothing and the day-to-day. -day. And 
is that path ultimately, even though we're biologically omnivores, becoming vegans? Sharon. <laughs> I thought we're, I thought we're taking turns. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to say, you know, um, I think, uh, a more alive spirituality, although more difficult is not having a particular formula, but really looking at your experience, looking at your motive, looking at the situation in terms of say, um, food, you know, the most particular, it's hard within the Buddhist teaching because the Buddha was, first of all, speaking most explicitly to monastics who are going out begging for food. So um, he seemed uh, very concerned that people not just go to the house of rich people, for example, where they get better food or there's a better cook. You know, so the number one ethic was sort of take what's offered. Except um, if you heard, saw, or suspected an animal was just being killed for you, you weren't allowed to take it. But if you just came up to a house and that's what they put in your begging bowl, then you're supposed to take it. So what does that mean 2,600 years later when you're not going around for alms, you have money and you're going to stores and you're buying things and you know that if you, along with many, many other people, cease to buy certain things, they wouldn't be produced anymore. Um, and people come out at lots of different places around that, you know, um, depending on their level of sensitivity and where that, that question brings them. I think it's, it's good to grapple, you know, that, that's what's true. Like Joseph and I once taught at a, um, spiritual community somewhere. We went into the meditation hall and there was fly paper everywhere, which was like totally disgusting. And we said, you've got to take that down. And they said, no, we have a really bad fly problem, which they did. But they also had, didn't have a single screen on the windows or there was no uh, repellent anywhere. It's like, it's very easy to kill in this society. So what about if you don't take the easy way? I, I don't know. You know, it's like um, the struggle is actually part of the process that seems very important to be wakeful, you know, and so that one's choices are not just driven by what's easy or conventional or, or conditioned, you know, in, in some way. So, you know, I mean, somebody like the Dalai Lama, for example, was a vegetarian for many years and his doctors told him he couldn't be. Maybe other doctors would have told him differently, but, you know, there's, there's just a range of where people, where people come out. And if you, I don't know if you um, know the work of Mathieu Ricard, who's a Frenchman who's been a monk in the Tibetan tradition for a very long time. He wrote a book as thick as Joseph's on altruism. And, uh, and then he wrote a 400-page supplement just about animals because he didn't get to say it all in the really thick book, uh, which I admire and could never do myself. Um, you know, and, and so it's very powerful to read something about that and really feel your way into what that 
what that implies, you know, for uh, the fear and torment that the animal may go through in the health of the planet and so on. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for um, all the wisdom that you shared. I'm curious if our, you brought up attachments, you both spoke to attachment. And if they, if our attachments evolve along with us and change along with us, with our consciousness and age and just evolution, or if we fool ourselves into believing our attachments change over time and wisdom and they're kind of the same throughout our lifetime, uh, or neither or both. I just want to make sure I understand the question. So are you asking whether the attachments we might become aware of, for example, as a younger person, whether those same attachments stay throughout our life or, well, that's simple. Everything changes <laughs> and the way they change will, so they will either get weaker or stronger or change in some way, but the way they change, I think will be very, uh, reflective of the amount of wisdom we can bring and mindfulness we can bring to the effect of the attachment. You know, and so one of the examples uh, is a story of a kind of monkey trap that they use in Asia uh, where they attach a coconut, a hollowed out coconut, like to a tree, and the whole, there's a hole in the coconut, a slit, where the monkey can slip its hand through when it's open, but can't pull its hand out when it's grasped in a fist. And so they put some bananas in the coconut. The monkey comes along. Oh. Caught. Now, if that monkey happened to have practiced mindfulness, <laughs> it might realize the cause of his suffering or her suffering. You know, oh, I have to let go. And then let go, he's, they're free. Without the wisdom, without the understanding, without the investigation, they might still be holding on, you know, and caught in the trap. So it, it very much depends on the quality of attention and, and investigation that we bring to our attachments that determines how they might change. I think even if you see the uh, same old attachment, that doesn't mean you're experiencing it in the same old way. You know, there's something that might arise kind of like a whisper or, um, you know, the kind of classic imagery in uh, Tibetan Buddhism is uh, like a cloud moving through the sky. And that's one way of experiencing it. It's another way of experiencing it where you take something to heart and it fills you and, uh, you know, takes over and is very determinative of your choices. And that's very different, even though it's the same old attachment. I say that just because I feel like I've seen a lot of people be what I would consider kind of needlessly discouraged because they say, oh, I'm still flipping out over the same mild stuff. It's the same provocation. I'm still losing it. And what we don't necessarily take the time to look at is that we used to really lose it and it used to last a day and now it's lasting 15 minutes, you know, and it's a really terrible feeling 15 minutes, but uh, it's done, you know, and most people, I find, really don't give themselves enough credit because at the end of that 15 minutes, we don't say, wow, you know, they used to last all day. Look at that. Uh, and, of course, it's not an immediate jump from all day to 15 minutes. It's a pretty gradual erosion, but it happens. It definitely happens.
I hold closer. I have a question for Joseph from your generosity teaching. Can you speak to fear in the context of generosity? I think I'd like to speak to fear in the context of fear because that was the mind state of all the difficult emotions. That was the one that really I worked with the most over many, many years of practice. Uh, Fear was the main afflictive emotion and it would come up in lots of different situations. And there were times in my intensive practice where, where it was so intense and so primal that I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. So it was completely irrational, you know, but it was just some primal, primal energy of fear. So I've worked with it a lot. So there was a a major turning point in my relationship to fear that was very freeing, but it took a long time to get to uh, because I didn't quite understand the dynamics involved. So for a long time, we come up most strongly on retreat, but also out of retreat. But I would be doing, you know, sitting, walking. Fear would come up in one way or another. And I would be noting fear, fear, fear. So I was recognizing it. But what I didn't recognize was that in my understanding that fear was there, I was watching it in order for it to go away. So it looked like mindfulness, but it wasn't mindfulness. And there's a very important distinction here, which could elaborate a lot more. There's a difference between recognition and mindfulness. Because we can recognize something through the filter of aversion, or not liking, or wanting. So we know what's there, but we're not being mindful of it. Right? Because we're still in relation through aversion or through greed. So one time I was doing this walking meditation, a lot of fear was coming up, and then something shifted. And the shift was expressed in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment in all those years that I genuinely accepted the feeling of fear. That it was okay. It's okay to feel it. And it was amazing. In that moment, that whole knot of fear just washed through in the acceptance of it. And it's not to say that fear never arises again, because it does, but the relationship to it has changed. So instead of it being the determining factor in what I do or don't do, because I can now, to a much greater degree, accept the feeling of, okay, fear, it's, a, it's here, it's okay, I can feel it, and I can still act. I can act in the face of fear. And I've seen this play out in so many realms. So, for example, fear arises in a moment of a generous impulse. And so there's two aspects here. One, it could be worth considering what the fear is about, you know, and to to see if there's some uh, wisdom in it. And the Dalai Lama would often speak about wise fear. If you 
you know, if there's a sign on the beach one day, don't go in dangerous undertow, having a fear about, that's a wise fear. That's, that's, that's a discriminating wisdom. That's very different than fear of aversion uh, to it. So if it's not the wise fear category with respect to the generosity, then even if there is a fear, which just comes from some habitual conditioning, you can get okay with feeling the fear and still act. So just one more story in that regard, because it actually took place in Hawaii years ago. I was teaching, and then after the course, we were on the island of Kauai. I don't know whether any of you have done the hike into Kalalau Valley. And actually, Sharon and I were on that hike together. And there's another whole Sharon story about that. But it's a long, very arduous She's hike. She's been afraid of heights ever since. <laughs> so anyway, we make it. It's an 11-mile hike up and down, and it's rigorous. And then in the valley, there's beautiful cliffs you know, coming up from the valley. And we're with friends who, who grew up in Hawaii and we're just very comfortable with all that. And so this friend says, oh, let's go climb the cliffs. <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> there was a lot of fear. At that point, I was able to reckon, fear, fear, it's okay. I can do this even though the fear is there. And it was so empowering to... I climbed up. I was afraid the whole way. And at the top, I was afraid, how am I going to get down? <laughs> but I didn't have to let the fear limit me because I was able to accept the feeling. You know, and this points to a much larger principle in meditation practice, which is learning that equanimity in the face of both pleasant and unpleasant. You know, in our lives, there are lots of unpleasant things that happen. Fear is an unpleasant emotion. It's analogous to a pain in the knee, emotionally. So just as we can learn in meditation, okay, this pain is okay. It it's, doesn't make it pleasant. It's unpleasant, and it's okay to feel it. It's okay to feel unpleasant. Same thing with unpleasant emotions. And that just opens a huge space of acceptance and, and openness and allowing them to flow through. So I would suggest you look at your relationship to fear, uh, you know, as a really interesting exploration. Thank you. One more question. Thanks so much for your wisdom. In um, some traditions, in Jewish tradition, I know that there is a um, idea of there are higher ways to give uh, in terms of generosity. And the highest level is to give to someone in a way, such a way that they'll be able to take care of themselves. It's like, you know, give someone a fish as opposed to give someone a fishing pole. And I'm curious as to whether Buddhism addresses that, uh, your traditions address that. Give to everyone. <laughs> if the thought comes, you know, and yeah, just take the whole range of, of possibility. Uh, there is a teaching which is, you won't like. Shall I, shall I? You're not going to like it. Okay, but you're not going to like it. Uh, 
<laughs> so there is a teaching about the power of giving being dependent on the purity of the person giving, the purity of the gift, whether it was rightfully acquired, and the purity of the receiver. And so, and I think it's the last part that sometimes people have problems with, you know, that, but the teaching is that if, for example, you give to a great enlightened being, the power of that gift is immeasurable compared to if you give to somebody minds, you know, filled with greed or hatred, that the, that the recipient also influences the power of the gift. So that teaching is there, you know, and so I take it in two ways, you know, because one is the first comment I made is just when there's an impulse gift to whoever. But knowing this teaching, when I have the opportunity to give to someone who feels like they're a great enlightened being, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, and so it's a, it's a particular motivation to act on it. So you can hold this as you like. But, but that, is part, that is part of the teachings. There's also just a, um, there's a funny, quirky teaching about generosity, which uh, I always thought was odd but interesting, where they said if you're angry at somebody, give them a gift. And uh, I just thought that's so quirky. But in times I've actually seen it done, it's interesting because sometimes in receiving a gift, it's almost like a mask slips off a person and you see almost like, the childlike delight, like, wow, somebody gave me something for a moment. And it's like a whole other relationship in that moment. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah.